Lord God, uphold me, I pray, that we may uphold the Lord Jesus Christ in our hearts and in his world. Amen. Do please turn to uh, page 1170 of the Church Bibles. Timing is a funny business. I planned this sermon months ago, but circumstances have made it more appropriate than I expected. Next week, we're going to resume our series in Galatians. We finished chapter 4 when we were last at it. But today, I want to go back to one particular verse, verse 28 of chapter 3, because it's become unusually important. If you're an attender at the Keswick Bible Convention, you'll recognize the strap line, all one in Christ Jesus. Keswick has always run on interdenominational lines. And I want to begin by asking what this verse meant when Paul wrote it. So far in the letter, he's been passionate about the gospel, the good news. The promises given to Abraham are fulfilled in the death of Jesus. They can't be fulfilled by keeping the Jewish law. Especially, that's the case with male circumcision. The Galatians were coming to believe a a corrupt version of the truth in which there was Jesus, but also the keeping of the law, circumcision. And so Paul, in verse 26, points out, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And he speaks of sons, of course, because in those days only sons could inherit. All of you who have been baptized have put on Christ. You don't need male circumcision. Baptism is open to all, all of you who've been baptized to put on Christ. So why, in verse 28, does he choose the divisions that he does? Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Every day, a good Jewish man would pray the prayer of the synagogue. I thank thee, O God, for not making me a Greek or a Gentile, a slave or a woman. So what Paul is doing here in this verse is addressing precisely the sense of privilege experienced by free male Jews. Circumcision is no longer necessary. Baptism's open to male and female. Later on in the Uh, In the letter, he's going to speak of slavery and the freedom available to all in Christ. If we look at that text, we may want to skip verse 29. It's sort of too Jewish. But that's the point. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and you are an inheritor of the promises to Abraham. It is very Jewish. It's about Abraham. The point then is not just that we are all one, but that we all together inherit the promise that Paul later describes in terms of love and life and spirit. Verse 
And one of the issues of timing that's happened is that this Sunday then turned out to be the annual Memorial Day for the Holocaust. And the destruction of so many Jewish people under appalling anti-Semitism. So any sensible person ought to ask whether Paul is here beginning anti-Semitism. Is he being anti-Jew? Well, if he were, he would be arguing that Abraham's promise is eliminated or irrelevant or set aside, instead of which he is is passionately pro-promise. And he points out that Abraham's promise is most wonderfully opened up to all who find themselves in Christ Jesus set right with God by faith, not law. But it is still the promise that was made to Abraham, to the founder of the Jewish people. Paul couldn't be clearer, and Christ has then opened the promises to everyone, although he, uh, because he was, not although he was, because he was born under the law, as uh, verse 4 of chapter 4 says. We are absolutely forbidden from looking up to or down on any other person in this room or the millions who share the faith in Christ. There is no east or west, no north or south. We are one as inheritors together of the promise first made to Abraham. That's what the verse means. That's what it meant. But we now need to introduce another factor. And very unusually, I want to preach on a text that isn't there. More than any other text in the whole Bible, this is the verse used by gay activists to argue that Scripture itself supports the equivalence of all sexualities. And normally, it's done by adding to verse 28. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, straight nor gay. It's just another either or that doesn't matter because we're all one in Christ Jesus. Now, you may think it's odd to introduce something into a sermon that isn't in the Bible text, but I can guarantee to you that if you have not yet heard the verse used in that way, you will, because we live in demanding times. And that takes me to the second issue around timing. I couldn't know when planning this sermon months ago that the Reverend Steve Chalk, Baptist minister and charity worker, charity founder indeed, would enter the discussion. In the February edition of Christianity Today, published last week, he argued that churches should approve and support those who are sexually active in same-sex partnerships, arguing that the church has been wrong in being opposed to homosexual activity. He's the first, as far as I know, the first big-name, self-confessed evangelical to break ranks. And his article is already having international impact on the worldwide evangelical scene. It comes, of course, as the government is pursuing its commitment to open marriage to same-sex couples. And in face of much church opposition to those plans, the support of a prominent evangelical is very helpful to the government's cause. 
Now, I'm not going to go into details, but the details are going to be available in the blue sheet that we send you if we have your email uh, for next month, with links to the Reverend Chalk's own article and to some responses to it. And I'm not going to engage very much with his arguments from Scripture. Frankly, they are simply odd. I think I could make a better case than he does for his own argument. Uh, It's as though he simply isn't trying very much with Scripture. But he draws very extensively on one single principle, the idea that Jesus was all about the inclusion of those who have felt excluded. And it's that principle that people are appealing to when they add neither straight nor gay to this verse. In the past, they've added neither black nor white. Now they're adding neither straight nor gay. And there are perhaps two kinds of response that need making. First, in any church service, first we come to confession. It's the case that the church has rarely confronted exclusion as it should have done. It's always been easier, hasn't it, to be comfortable with people like us on the inside. Did you come to church this morning or will you leave church this morning pained by the recognition of those even in our own parish who for all practical purposes are excluded from our church even if we don't aim at it? And it's also true that yes, amongst the excluded we would have to include many gay people. We say that the issue isn't really Uh, about orientation, it's about practice. But do we actually enable our gay members of this church to say, I'm gay and it's not easy? There is a lot to confess. I said there were two responses. And the second of those is actually the issue of engagement. After confession, let's engage with the issue. We have to recognize that if you're going to get anything done these days, it'll be on the basis of inclusion or equality. At the same-sex business caused a fuss earlier, uh, or to the back end of last year, and I was speaking to our bishop, who'd just come from a radio studio and been talking about the issue. He expressed huge frustration that the issue itself is never really considered at all. Rather, as he put it, equality trumps everything else. And that's the main reason why I wanted to address this text today. Because what I hear you saying to me is that we feel unable to express opinion anymore because we are in a world where equality trumps everything. It might be our families, might be our office, our college, whatever. We have a contribution to make, but we don't know how to open our mouths effectively. We hope there's someone out there who can argue the case for us, but in our own office, our own college, we are struck dumb. And what I want to try to do is to give you two more or less useful things to say. First, something to say in the office, the workplace, the, the college, the family. What we're dealing with is an approach that runs like this. I can do whatever I like so long as it harms nobody, and this is the important bit, 
No other person has the right to tell me otherwise. That is a view that has had serious and high endorsement this week. When at his oath-taking, President Obama said of the issue of gay rights, for if we are truly created equal, then surely the love we commit to one another must be equal as well. Faced with that huge scale of argument, what can we say? Well, first of all, I'd suggest we shouldn't be surprised at the power of the argument. After all, it's very like another argument I've already mentioned. We are all one. The argument for equality turns out to be a deeply Christian argument, except it's taken out the bit in Christ Jesus. When we argue against equality, let's not saw off the branch of the tree on which we are sitting. We can agree with our friend, or very nearly agree. We are all equal, except for the one who stands above us all. And if you can say that to your friend, who says to you, well, you're all, we're all equal, you've got no right to tell me what to do. If you can say to your friend, no, absolutely, I have no right to tell you what to do. And we are all equal. The only thing is there is one who is not all equal. And he is the Lord Jesus Christ who's been appointed by his resurrection from the dead after his crucifixion as Lord and coming judge of all. Then you've got a way in to take your friend into the Bible text. And you can ask, what think you of the Christ? There are ways to deal with this issue of equality that take people to the one person who is not equal. Let's expect the argument to be powerful. Let's not feel surprised when people use an argument that's pretty like some of the arguments we use. But let us remember that Jesus is not equal. He is the Lord. However, There are those who argue, like the Reverend Chalk, uh, who do know their Bibles. They are not arguing that homosexual practice is to be supported just because everything is equal. They know, of course, that sin is real. And so the argument here is much more subtle. And the argument comes to us that there should be marriage of all those, straight or gay, who want relationships that are faithful, loving, and stable. The equality is expressed in the quality of the relationship. Just like with President Obama, the love in the relationship justifies the equality. So having said or tried to offer something useful, we may say, to those around us in the workplace, this college, the family, I now want to say, something to offer, something that I hope will be useful to say to those who are in the church, because we may encounter those too, either in our own church or from other churches, arguing as Steve Chalk has done. And at this point, we simply have to go back to the creation. There is change in Scripture. There's a 
a trajectory sometimes, a development. The roles of men and women change over time. The attitude to slavery is different from Old to New Testament. And those trajectories give us permission to continue to ask questions about change and development once Scripture closes. But on this issue, there is no trajectory that takes us anywhere other than back to the basic division in the creation that was made between male and female and to the fruitfulness of sex that was intended to be normative between husband and wife. I say normative because there are those, of course, who cannot enter into that fruitfulness. For Scripture, the quality of the relationship is important, but the foundation for sexual activity is a given reality of male and female, and the chosen reality of heterosexual marriage. It is not permitted to go outside those. Now, if you want to explore in more background, you can dwell on the power of what Paul has to say in Galatians chapter 6 about being a new creation. Now, I don't suppose I'm alone. I love that power to renew the creation so that I am not what I was, so that being Jew and Gentile no longer matters. But what is going on now in cultures that have a Christian heritage, ourselves, the States, the West more generally, is the claim that new creation justifies any newness we may choose, which is why chapter 3, verse 28 matters. It is a precise and complete list of Jewish privilege. It is not a random collection of opposites conjured from the air. It is unaddable to. And the argument of new creation from chapter 6 never means a muddying of all distinctions so that male and female are abandoned in favor of any kind of sexuality you like. What Christ does with the creation is renew it, taking it back to where it should have gone all along. He does not scrap the creation and start again. When I became a Christian, I did not move on the grounds of being a new creation from being left-handed to, from being right-handed to being left-handed. I stayed right-handed. I have no right to walk up to Jesus and stamp my little foot and say, you promised me a new creation. I want to be left-handed from now on. Any more than I, I can say to him, though I would quite like to, you gave me a new creation. I want to be one foot taller. It's not going to happen. Jesus does not scrap the creation. To start again. Interestingly, that was an error in the second century, and here we are doing it all over again. Jesus doesn't abolish the law, but fulfill it. The freedom he brings lies along the grain of what the law was expressing of God's character. And that final point takes me to what I think is at the heart of the issue as I close. One of the acts of the sinful nature that Paul mentions in Galatians 5 is idolatry. 
Now, I don't want to imply that loving a person of the same sex is in itself idolatrous. I very clearly don't want to say that. But I do want to suggest that a society believing that all are one, while choosing to forget that that is in Christ Jesus, is precisely becoming an idolatrous society. The worst idolatries in Israel's history were always the ones that were most like, and yet just enough to be quite unlike, the worship of Yahweh. And the church is becoming idolatrous if it follows that idolatry in the world. And that, I suspect, is at the heart of it. We have made ourselves the measure of what matters in our own life. Instead, the Bible insists that we are measured by how we deal with the things we can't change in life. We might be shy and want to be outgoing. We might be plain and want to be good-looking. We might be short and want to be tall. We might be gay and want to be straight. The message of freedom in Galatians, however, is that however you are created and whatever your circumstance there is for you, within that shape, the freedom, the love, and the spirit that is in Christ. If you make too much fuss trying to make your circumstances fit the choices you wish you could make, you may miss the one choice you can make that matters to enter into the promises of God first known in Abraham. Well, we're going to pray. But I do want to say, before we do that, let me say this. I'm sure that this kind of area causes all kinds of frustrations. Some of you have probably been sitting there, and you haven't heard the last ten minutes, because ten minutes ago I said something, and you've been thinking, yes, but what if? What about? We'll use the links in the blue sheet uh, when they come out this week. And if that provokes inquiries, or if after today you've got questions, I'll try uh, to answer them. But what I may well do is wait until a few have come in and then try to answer it all together. But let's pray now. Lord God, there are, there are two kinds of prayer I want to uh, close with right now. There are some of us here that are gay and uh, we don't know how to deal with it. We struggle in various ways. We feel isolated because As part of this church, we are made to feel a they and not a we. And we pray for our own wrestling. We pray to find safe places to go with our questions and our challenges. So that we may enter in the right ways into the oneness that is in Christ Jesus. 
And there are others of us who uh, find our, our frustration is that in that we don't know what to say. We find ourselves struck dumb by the power of the equality argument that's, that's widely spread in our society. We pray that you would give us confidence in Jesus Christ as the one who is not equal, but the one who is preeminent. The one who has brothers and sisters, but is first among them. The one who will usher in the judgment and the resurrection of all, and yet has gone before. Give us confidence in our oneness and give us even more confidence in his aloneness as Lord. Strengthen us, we pray, in our faith and give us the words to speak to our own hearts in the fellowship of your people, in the world around us, especially in the struggles and challenges it faces between Jew and Greek, male and female, slave and free, and yes, between black and white and straight and gay. In Jesus' name.